Hey, 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 welcome to the Grace Course Podcast. So this uh, week, we're going to start a series looking at the question, is God really good? And you might think, well, obvious answer, yes. And of course, that's what I believe. However, if you haven't asked this question in your life, you haven't read your Bible. <laughs> you know, it's one of those questions that as you read through your Bible, you at some point go, wait a minute, is this the same God that is represented by Jesus? And and we see this kind of stuff all the time as we, we approach the scriptures. And, and what I want to do in this series is approach the whole topic honestly, openly, just look at the Bible for some of the things that are in it. And it's uncomfortable. It's, it's awkward. And that's what we're going to talk about in this first episode um, of this series, this first part. We're going to look at the uncomfortable truth that is contained within our Bible. And so I won't go any further. I'll let the, the, the message speak for itself. Um, but here we go. So... Um, we're we're going to do some stuff today that, um, I, you know, let, let me say first off, um, my intent is never to upset anyone. My intent is never to um, cause people to lose all faith in God and go off the rails. Um, but if you do that for a season today, that's okay, right? So if at some point during the talk you suddenly realize, oh my God, there is no God, something that's okay. We'll get to the end, okay? There's going to be a point where you go, okay, no, no, I'm good, I'm good, Okay. Kind of joking, kind of also really serious, okay? Because we're going to look at some stuff in the Bible that we don't usually look at, and for good reason. It's really, really messed up, okay? Has anyone ever thought that about the Bible? Anyone done? Anyone read their Bible and thought, Who, what? Really? No, I mean, anyone? Like, honestly, show of hands, has anyone ever thought, what is going on in this thing? Yeah. Um, and, and those that haven't, I would argue you either haven't read your Bible uh, uh, before the Gospels, or you've been writing, write, reading it with like blinkers on, and, and we all do that big time. Like there's bits where I get to a certain bit in the Bible, and I'm like, and then he killed everyone, men, women, children, dogs, cats, cows, and you're just like, okay, next page, quick. Oh, and then he blessed everyone. Oh, thank God, right? Yeah? Because, you know, I don't really want to engage too much with that guy. I don't really want to get too nitty-gritty with these things, right? You, you read the Gospels and you read about Jesus and you're like, oh, just imagine being there. Can you imagine you were hearing his voice as he preached on the Sermon of the Mount, this message of grace and mercy? We don't do that and we go, oh, can you imagine there, being there, killing every single man, finding those women and stabbing them, killing their babies. Oh, to be there in the presence of the Lord doing his work. Anyone thought that? If so, I would recommend psychiatry, not this. Um, so, but we kind of have to acknowledge it's there. Okay? And that is uncomfortable, if we're honest. It's a lot more comfortable to ignore it. Um, but the truth is, most of the arguments I've had with people that don't believe in God um, have some uh, belief in a divine power, something greater than themselves, some sort of spiritual reality. They just don't believe in that God. And the truth is, if we're going to say, no, that God is our God, we probably need to have an answer for why he killed every single man, woman, and child that disagreed with him. We probably need to have an answer for why he killed tens of thousands of his own people for saying, I don't like the bread you gave me. Literally, that's in there. And then when 10,000, sorry, is it 14,700 people complained saying, that seems unfair that he killed all those people that were complaining about the bread. He killed them too. His own people. And we just go, that's my God. And it's kind of a bit unsettling, right? It's unsettling to go, this is my God. It's unsettling when David has an affair with Bathsheba, right? This man after God's heart has an affair. And God goes, I'm going to punish this guy. And kills his baby. That's how God punishes David. That's an interesting message to bring up in a, a God hates abortion topic. He kills a brand new baby to punish someone else. That's our God. You feeling uncomfortable yet? Yeah. <laughs> right? Because it's really uncomfortable. This is not going to be a comfortable first session, okay? That my goal is to make you feel really uncomfortable because I think some of us don't ask this question. I want to get to the point where you are going, I need answers. Because until you get there, you're not going to be in a place to actually start 
finding the answers. You're not going to be in a place to actually start going, huh. And I do not say I have all the answers either. So some of you might end up just going away confused. That's okay as well. God is not worried. God is not scared. God is the one that leads us into all truth. And some of us need to go a longer path than others. I went a really long path to get to where I am. Um, and that's why I can read some of this stuff and go, it's, it's kind of crazy and I'm being slightly humorous to try and take the edge off. But this is really messed up stuff. This is really, really messed up stuff. When God goes to the Israelites and says, I've had enough of your antics, I'm going to cause you to eat your children as a punishment. And you think, hmm, that's Christ-like. Jesus reveals God. Well, you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father. Could you imagine uh, they threw the adulteress at Jesus' feet and says, you know, what are we going to do? Would, would you stone her? And Jesus says, no, let's make her eat her children. That's what God would do. Because that is what God did in the Old Testament at times. Multiple times he made his own people eat their children. Um, what are we going to do with that? <laughs> it feels awkward, right? I mean, like, it's really, really awkward. I'm kind of glad no one brought their kids, right? I'm, you're, you're old enough. Because um, I was like, I don't even know how to even talk about this stuff. Remember the time where God beep, 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 and then there's Jesus. Because it's really, really X-rated stuff pretty much the whole way through. God is pretty crazy at times. And if we're honest, it's a little bit schizophrenic. One minute, he's this God who's loving, who has mercy, whose anger is slow at coming and mercy is quick to be dished out. And then the next minute he goes, no, I'm going to kill all of your kids, all of their kids, and anyone that gets through, I'll kill their kids for what you did. No, I'm not going to punish you. I mean, it's quite a, it's a fascinating concept of a just God. Because one of the things that we often talk about with this, right, is I, I was just in a church um, a few weeks ago. We went to uh, this lovely, lovely church, very conservative, very um, classical, evangelical, quite fundamental at times. Um, you wouldn't even be able to raise your hands kind of thing, you know, very like this is the way it is. And I talked to this um, couple and they were in their 90s and they were, oh, I have to look you up. What is it you do? And I was like, do not look me up. Oh, please no. Because my, my, uh, my wife's grandmother goes to that church and if she finds out, oh, gosh. Um, <laughs> um, and so they're talking to me and they're like, well, so you challenge what people think. And I'm like, yeah. And they're like, oh, so you tell it like the Bible really says it. And I'm like, yeah, I, I, I would believe I do. Yeah. I challenge what people, how people approach the Bible, and, and I'd like them to see what, I, what there really is in there. And they're like, oh, good. So you don't do this whole wishy-washy, God looks like Jesus thing. You tell them he's also just and full of wrath. And I was like, it's similar to that, yeah. <laughs> kind of the opposite, but similar. I didn't say that. Um, but you get people that are like that, right? Well, God, is he's loving, he's kind, he's gracious, he's wonderful, he's slow to anger. Don't read your Old Testament. If you do, at least read it selectively. Maybe a verse here in the Psalms, maybe that one. Oh, whoops, I went into the Psalm where it says God wants to dash your babies on a rock. Dang it, read the wrong Psalm. I was one chapter too early. Oh, he makes me lie down in green powder. That's better. Oh, this is good. You've got to be really careful when you're reading through the Old Testament, or you might come across someone that doesn't look very like Jesus. And it's a, it's a fact right? Now, there's lots of ways we can get around this. Loads and loads and loads of ways. Um, we can talk about covenants, and well, that was because people were sinful and awful, and they were worshipping false gods, and they were doing all sorts of things, and, and, and God has to punish sin. He has to do what is right, what is just. He cannot be around sin. He has to, sin has to get what it deserves, and, and thankfully, Jesus came, and he was punished on our behalf, and now God can be good to us, and nice, and kind, and graceful, and all these wonderful things. And that's one way to navigate it. And if that's where you've come to, that's okay. But I would challenge you that it might not work entirely for you. Because I'm not sure I want to spend eternity with God and the only way he can put up with me is because he killed his own son instead of me. And he is the same, right? God never changes. So he's still the same kind of guy that would kill every man, woman, and child. He's still the same kind of guy that would go, I'm going to kill your baby to treat you a lesson, teach you a lesson. So, yeah, we can get away with it and it's covenant and it's changed and that's not how he is towards us anymore. But it's kind of still his nature and his character. Mm. 
I'm not sure that's going to work for me. And that can work for you, and that's totally okay if it does. Like, I'm really not trying to, hear me say this, I am not trying to change anything you believe. I'm trying to challenge you to think. Because I think in this area, we don't think. And we need to have answers because people are asking questions. People are going, well, how can you worship a God like that? I said, well, he's not like that. He's like Jesus. And it's like, but you believe that that is what? The truth, right? You believe that's truth. You believe it's Bible. You believe that God is like that. Well, yeah, but no, not really. But yeah, but oh, <laughs> right? Anyone been in that position with someone talking to them and just gone, I, yeah, uh, I don't know what to say anymore. At Jesus, he's good. Right? And, and, I, and you know what? If that's the only place you can come to, that's a pretty good place to come to. At the end of the day, if you can just come back to going, God, you look like Jesus, and that's all I need to know. I'm not sure how to deal with everything else. That's okay. Um, but this is an exercise in talking about, is God like Jesus? How do we know he's like Jesus? How, do we, how can we do that? And so that's what I want to talk about today. I want to just do this kind of navigation of how can God look like Jesus, and how can this still be in our scriptures? How can this be... Um, said that God is like this. Okay, you guys feeling really uncomfortable yet? You worried? Anyone worried? I'm worried. Um, any uncomfort you think, you feel, just imagine being the person that's saying this stuff, okay? Um, <laughs> I want you to do an exercise with me, all right? So everyone close your eyes, okay? We're gonna do an interactive experience, okay? This is gonna be fun. Um, for me. Um, <laughs> I want you to imagine that you are an Israelite and you've come out of Egypt, your, your parents came out of Egypt and, um, and you've been wandering in the desert, in the wilderness and, and all your, your parents have died off because they're not going to get to see the promised land and it's come to the time where you get to go into the promised land. You've been slaves for 400 years, you've been, ha never had a place to call home and you're about to get this place that's entirely yours. And God has said it's going to be a place that just flows with milk and honey because apparently that's a good thing. And that it's going to have crops that you never planted that you get to enjoy. And there's houses you never built and you get to have your own house. And it's going to be wonderful. Okay? I want you to imagine that. Just picture this amazing place that's all given to you freely. You don't have to do anything to gain it or to earn it. God's going to give it to you on a platter. And I want you to, to, to know that there's, there's people that live there right now. But God has said he's going to set you uh, give their places to you. He's going to drive them out of land. He's, he's, he's said to you, you just kill every single man, woman, and child. This place is going to be given to you. They're really bad, so it's okay to kill them all. But you go into the town. And, and so imagine you go out and you go out to war. You pull out your sword and you're going to war. And it's, and it's, um, it's amazing. Not one person by your side has a scratch on them. And people are falling to your left and to your right and to your left and to your right. And you're just plowing through. It's, it's the most astonishing victory that you've ever seen or heard of. That nobody got hurt on your side is just amazing. And so you're left standing and the battleground is done. And it's like a scene from Braveheart. You know, it's just bodies everywhere, but not one on your side. And you walk through into the town. And there's this beautiful city with high walls. It's, um, it's got massive houses. You, you go in and you think, great, I get to pick out my house. Right? And you're thinking, right, well, I remember the list the wife gave me. You know, it's got to be three bedrooms, two baths, maybe a heated pool. You know, like, I want to get all these things just checked off. And so you start wandering around and you go into a house and you're checking it out. And you're like, oh, this place is nice. Oh, yeah, nice. So, so you're thinking, maybe this is a nice place. It's got a big island in the, in the kitchen. It's great. And you go up the stairs. And you're like, I better check the back rooms, you know, the bedrooms for the kids, you know. Um, and you go, oh, it's got good space. Yeah, nice. And you go into the last room. You open the door. And sitting on the bed is a pregnant 16-year-old, and she's clutching a four-year-old to her chest. What do you do? What's the answer? You feel uncomfortable, right? I hate this exercise. But it's good to do. What do you do? What's the right, godly thing to do? Because we know the answer. This is not a hard question. But in another way, it's the hardest of questions. Because we know the answer is, I kill her. And I kill the kid too. And in some way, I'm killing that unborn baby. But they're deeply evil, right? Now, I know a few 16-year-olds. Okay, yeah, probably. <laughs> right? <laughs> and I know a few 4-year-olds. Yeah, probably as well. <laughs> 
Are these people deeply evil? Are these people people that must be killed at all costs? Is this what God wants you to do? The answer is yes. According to the Bible, the answer is 100% yes. So, okay, let's go. So you pull out your sword. And she's crying and screaming and getting really, really uncomfortable, as you would, right? And Jesus walks in the room. What do you do? Does anything change? Because if Jesus, when he walks in the room, isn't going, yeah, kill her, do it now, then your God of the Old Testament is different to Jesus. Can you see Jesus doing that? Can you see Jesus cheering and clapping and going, yes? Probably not. Hopefully not. Okay, you can open your eyes. Most of you are opening your eyes already and like panicking. Um, <laughs> horrible exercise, right? But I hope it kind of helps paint the picture of we do have a different God to a Jesus. On some level, we do not believe God looks like Jesus perfectly in every way. We believe that they're slightly different. But when faced at the very crux of it, we'll pick Jesus every time. That's who I really believe God is. And actually, if I'm having to pick between these two pictures, I know which one I serve. I know which one. And so this is okay. Like, so I'm, I'm kind of trying and hold your hand the whole way through. And we're going to do most of this day. is going to be discussion and lots of Q&A. And, and so, you know, don't panic, okay? But I want to show you that we do have a problem in Christianity. Because we have a God who is deeply, deeply psychotic is a, is a kind word. Probably a little too kind, really, for some of the stuff. And we have a Jesus who says, I look exactly like God. If you have seen me, you've seen God. And I don't know if we know how to join the dots. And that's my hope, is that today we can start joining dots. And it's at least going to give you some tools and some different ways. And you might come to a very different conclusion, and that's totally okay. Um, I've had a lot of conversations with some of the people that you've had come speak here, and they join the dots very differently. And for me, I'm like, I just doesn't work for me. That, that exercise just doesn't work. Um, but I want to give you at least another way to look at things and maybe a few different ways to look at things. But to do that, we need to understand a whole bunch of different stuff. And so we're going to just look at an overview of scripture in one way. And so I want to talk about Abraham. Okay, I want to talk about where Israel faith came from, because Abraham is the father of all of Israel, right? Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. Um, and so one day, Abraham is in his city. Um, it's one of the first cities that ever existed. Again, according to scripture, I'm sure there was cities in China or something at some point, or, you know, whatever. You can believe differently otherwise. Um, but according to scripture, this was the first city, one of the main cities that had started, and Abraham was in the midst of it. And we start our story with Abraham. Abraham is just there. God speaks to Abraham, and he leaves, and they go on a journey. And it kind of just all happens in a vacuum. We don't think about, well, Abraham came from this town. What was this town like? What, were, what was his faith like? What did he believe before God showed up and says, hi, I'm God? Um, and we kind of disconnect ourselves, and we forget that the Bible didn't come out of a vacuum, that Judaism didn't come out of a vacuum, that Israel didn't just pop out of nowhere the day after they left the garden. That there's a whole world going on. And there's a whole system of beliefs. And there's a whole bunch of different gods that are already around before Abraham goes, oh, oh, you're a god. There's a whole bunch of gods. And so we have to understand that the Bible develops in a world. And it, Judaism comes about in a world. In fact, what you're going to find is when you read through the Bible, you've got to wonder, right? There's so many times they go off and worship other gods. Have you ever thought about this? You're like, how stupid are these guys, right? I mean, God does crazy miracles, right? I mean, amazing miracles. And they're just still stupid. You're like, really? Like, okay, let's go for the wisest person that ever lived, okay? Solomon. It says of Solomon, he was the wisest person to ever have existed, and he is the wisest person that ever will exist, I'm not sure if they included Jesus in that. I don't know. Um, but that's, that's what the Bible says. No one will ever exist that is wiser than Solomon. This guy saw God and met with him twice in his life. Okay, wisest man who ever lived met with God twice in his life. Still ended up worshipping false gods. 
Like, you're like, well, that's not good. Right? I mean, this guy's wise, he's seen God, and he still goes, ah, Baal, he seems like an interesting person to worship. Right? Pretty interesting choice. And so throughout the scriptures, they keep doing this, right? God sets them free from Egyptians. They see these incredible plagues in one sense, terrible in another sense, if you again stop and think about the God who kills firstborn babies um, to teach one guy a lesson. Um, But amazing, profound miracles they see. Like a few weeks later, what are they doing? They're making fake calf gods and worshiping them and off doing this and that. and, And you're just like, how do these people consistently worship other gods? Like, how? Because, you know, I think we're pretty on the ball, on the whole, Christianity, compared to that, right? And, and you're like, and we don't really see towers of fire following us throughout the high street as we go shopping, you know, leading to the way. Um, you know, we don't see, like, anything that we want happen, just food falling from the sky, all these different things. And we don't end up worshipping false gods. So how the heck do these people keep worshipping other gods? And so we have to understand that uh, there was a whole world that we largely are completely unaware of. And so let's talk about what it was like at this time. So this time Abraham was basically um, mid-Bronze Age, mid to early Bronze Age. Um, And so in this time, we, we forget that they knew nothing. And that's a kind statement, okay? Like, we really forget how intelligent and how far and how developed our civilization is, okay? These people would worship the sun god throughout the night so it came back, okay? These people genuinely didn't know why the sun went down, why the moon came up, and then prayed, oh god of the day, we hope you defeat the god of night tonight and come back. How many of you have done that this week, right? (laughs) But this is where they're at. These people are literally praying to the rain gods that the rain falls so they can eat. Now, they don't know why when rain falls they get to eat, but they just know, well, if it doesn't rain, no food comes out the ground and we all starve. So they've put two and two together go, we better pray to the rain god. But they also know if it rains all the time, things don't go well very well either. So they pray to the god of the sun. And they also know that they need to pray to like the god of the, the soil and, the, and, the, and the, the valley and the harvest and the hills. And there's a god of cattle and there's a god of this and there's a god of life. Because, hey, just 100 years ago, one in five kids would die in the West when they were born because we didn't wash our hands. Okay, like We have come very far. Okay, That was 100 years ago, maybe 120 Okay, imagine what it was like five, 6,000 years ago, right? So if one in five of us was making it back then, we're talking pretty grim odds, okay? So they figured out the fun part, okay? They figured out how life begins, okay? Because that's the fun part to work out, right? So they work out, oh, when we do this, babies get happen. Great, that's good. Um, what they don't understand is, well, why does sometimes it not? Why does sometimes life not happen. Maybe God's upset with me. And that's really how they thought. The God of life or the God of fertility or the God of whatever it is that they choose to worship, maybe they're not happy. So somehow I need to please the God of life. Same thing a farmer would go, oh, I need to please the God of rain. I need to offer a sacrifice to the God of rain so it rains. Now, where are we today? Do any of you do these things? Right? You might say, well, yeah, I pray to the God of life, God. But you know, we don't have a God of all these different things and genuinely believe, well, if it rains today, we've pleased the rain God. Or, but then we've maybe, maybe we angered the sun God. I don't know. What do, uh, uh, right? But they had gods for everything they didn't understand. And, and that's just part of human nature. We need an explanation for the unexplainable. And we need to know that somehow we might be able to like, do something about this unexplainable truth. There's something, there's got to be something I can do to have a healthy baby boy. If I just pray hard enough to the God of life, then maybe it will happen. Now, what's the problem with that? It's not going to work, right? Because it's nothing to do with that. It's probably to do with you're not washing your hands or, you know, you're not eating the right nutrients when you're pregnant. But you are praying fervently to that God of life because that's all you know to do. So you get pregnant exciting, fascinating, wonderful, like just mystery. And so what do you do? You, you start offering a sacrifice to the God of life. So you would burn something. You would do something to, to worship this God. Um, and we know this because throughout all of the world, 
all of the world. We can trace archaeologically, um, anthropologically, we can trace human evolution of we start sacrificing small things, right? We do it as Christians as well, right? We start offering God a little bit of a barter. You know, God, if you do this, I'll do this, right? Anyone ever done that as a kid? Or maybe now? <laughs> I remember as a kid, I used to do that with God all the time. God, if you just bless me like this, I'll stop doing that. Right? I'm like trading with God, right? And then the more you struggle, the more you're like, okay, I'll up the ante. I'll never do it ever again. Or I'll, I'll not do this as well. Or I'll do this. I'll go to church three times a week, you know? So, but we up our ante so we can try and trade with this God on some level. So it's just human nature, right? Um, and I like to think I don't do that anymore, but I probably do it on some level without thinking. Um, so they, they start sacrificing to God. They go, well, I want a healthy baby boy. I want a healthy baby girl. So I'll get a bunch of my food, my grain, that's really valuable because that's what we feed ourselves with. And if we don't get the ratios right, we starve this year. Okay. But I'm going to get some and I'm going to burn it on an offering. So it goes up because the gods lived up, right? Because we could dig down. So that was where death was. And that was, you know, but gods were up there. And so we burned stuff. So the, so the smell went up to the gods and they would be pleased. How people put together these things is fascinating, right? Because, I mean, I don't know. I think we're just so far removed from that culture that we're like, really? That's what we think? If we burn stuff, the smell goes up, and the gods smell it and go, oh, okay, yeah, I'll give you a healthy baby. But that's what they thought. And so there's this sacrifice of grain. Now, what's the problem with that? There's no god of life up there smelling grain going, yeah, all right, give me a kid. They're worshipping nothing. You could say, well, God is gracious and he's listening. And that, that may well be the case as well. But on the whole, on the premise of it, a God of life or a God of the hills or the God of the sea or the God of river, these aren't gods. There is but one God. So they're offering a sacrifice. And the problem when you're offering a sacrifice to something is it needs to exist. So time comes around and you have a healthy baby boy. What do you think? Yes, I've got it. I've got the formula. I know next time I get pregnant, we just burn this amount of grain and we'll be fine, right? Or, if it doesn't go as well, which is probably more likely, what do you do? You go, ah, didn't get it right, we need to offer something more. But the problem is, regardless if it goes well or if it doesn't, is sacrifice always escalates. Because even if you get it right, you're going to do it again, and odds are at some point it's not going to work. And you go, oh, I've offended the gods by just doing the same thing. You know, I should, I should have given more this time. And so we start sacrificing things more valuable to us. Maybe we sacrifice the family sheep or cow because it's got much more value to us. That's providing our milk. It's you know, providing warmth when we shear the sheep. It's, it's got some meat on it for when it gets old, we'll kill it and actually have a good meal. So we sacrifice that. That's a real offering. Same issue. Maybe it works, maybe it doesn't. It's kind of irrelevant because you're worshiping nothing. And so we escalate again. Oh, well, we might get my prize fighting bull. You know, I'll sacrifice that. It's, it's amazing. And then we escalate again. Oh, well, this sheep doesn't even have a blemish. There's not even a mark on it. It's perfect, spotless, and I'm offering it as a baby before it can ever do anything wrong. And it's just perfect. And then we escalate again. And again, we can track this in South America. We can track this in Asia. We can track this throughout Africa. Wherever you look in the world, this is the dark truth of human history is the next step is we start sacrificing people. That's what's valuable. There's a lot more valuable. Cousin Bob, worth more than your bull, right? <laughs> Depending on what week it is, right? Maybe if you get a bit angry with Cousin Bob. And it's really dark and terrible because the person that you'd sacrifice, well, who do we not care about, right? I'm close to my wife and my kids, maybe that kid over there, they're an orphan. They're getting by eating some grain in the corner of some fields. No one will miss them. I'll sacrifice them. And this is what happens. They would sacrifice the, the orphans, the widows, the weak, the poor, um, the disabled. And they would sacrifice these people. Now, what's the problem? We're still offering a sacrifice to nothing. And our outcomes are random. So what happens there? At some point you go, this isn't working either. Better make it more serious. All right, Bob, now you are up, come on. Yeah. Have any of you seen that Apocalypto, the Mel Gibson movie, was that what it was called, Apocalypto? That's an intense picture of what this looks like. If you haven't seen it, force yourself to watch it and think that, that is what Abraham grew up in. Because the next step is what? 
what do you offer? Because when you're starting to offer family members, right? When you start to offer, you know, uh, the runt of the pack, so to speak, right? What happens when you need to escalate even more? What's the best thing you can give? Your firstborn kid. And this is what happens. Now, the problem with that, right, is how many firstborns do you have? Right? Hopefully just one. I don't know how that works otherwise. Um, I guess if twins, maybe? <laughs> one of them came out first. Um, hopefully. Oh, that's a horrifying thought. Um, uh, <laughs> so we start offering our firstborn kids. But the problem is, there's hundreds of gods. There's the god of the rain, the god of life, the god of the sea, the god of the rivers, the god of the farmlands, there's god of agriculture, there's god of everything, there's god of space, there's god of sun, there's god of moon, there's, right? And so you've got to start thinking, all right, well, which god gets this one, right? Which is the god I want to please the most? Or maybe, in much more of a fear culture, which is the god I want to piss off less, right? And so what they had was this concept of a most high god. And so throughout this, this culture, they had the concept of the most high God. And that, what that did was it was like, right, I'm a farmer, so I want healthy kids. Absolutely. In fact, I can't run my farm without healthy kids. But you know what? What I need more is I need to grow some grain. Because if I can't sell the grain to the community, we're going to die. So I'm going to pick the God of agriculture or the God of rain or whatever, you know, in, it varies in different cultures. Um, and we don't have huge data on which gods explicitly. We just know there was lots of different gods. And we know a few, but we wouldn't know what they called them or how they defined them as well um, throughout this kind of Mesopotamian culture, this, this region that would have been where Israel came from, Babylon and um, Samaria and all this kind of surrounding area. Um, so they pick their most high god, and that's who gets the firstborn son. Now, you, you feel you got a bit of a picture of like, what the world was like. Anyone want to go back in time to the good old days? Right? <laughs> Certainly not your kids. Um, <laughs> so, in the midst of this, we have a guy called Abraham. And he's hanging out, doing his thing, living life. His father is very wealthy, doing very well for himself. Hasn't sacrificed Abraham somehow, so we don't know where he was in the pecking order or whatever. And all of a sudden, God shows up and goes, hey, Abraham, hi. Who are you? Oh, I'm God, and I want to be your most high God. What's the most interesting thing that just got said there? Because that's, that's, that's the dialogue. God doesn't say, I am the only God. You ever thought about that? When we have a context of how they talked, we suddenly realize, oh, God's saying, I want to be your most important God. He doesn't even identify himself as the only God. Do you know that it takes all the way till Moses talks through a burning bush before God says, I'm the only God. That's a long way with a lot of people before God goes, oh, I'm the only God, by the way. Which is fascinating. It says a lot about the security of God, I think. Yeah. He's not worried if you believe in other gods. Who cares? And let's be honest, we all do on some level. We all idolize in some way, shape, or form. But God's secure, and he goes, oh, I want to be your most high God. What's he saying? Listen, put all these gods to the side and follow me. Trust what I say. Put what I say above anything else you hear in culture or you think and follow me. And he says, I want to pull you out. And he says, I want you to leave your father's tradition and all this stuff. What's he saying? I want to leave all these false gods, all this rubbish, all this nonsense. Follow me and you're going to be blessed. You're going to have kids that are as a multitude. You're going to have all these amazing things, right? And it's a fascinating story. Abraham is a great story and it's weird and wonderful. I mean, the guy is the most disobedient person ever. Like, I mean, he never does what God says and God never tells him off. In fact, God yells at everyone else, right? Abraham pawns his wife off as his sister so that the Pharaoh can sleep with her. And God gets angry at Pharaoh. And then Pharaoh gets angry at Abraham, right? Because he's like, dude, this is your fault. I'm getting yelled at by God for something you did. And then 15 years later, he does the same thing. Abraham hasn't even learned his lesson. He goes back and, and does exactly the same thing. And the same thing goes down. Um, crazy. Whatever. Who knows? Um, it's a bizarre story. And what's funny is Abraham is our picture of perfect faith, according to Paul, which is really a reassuring, right? When you have someone that really didn't believe God very well as your picture of perfect faith, you're like, oh, okay, well, that takes a bit of the weight off me, <laughs> right? I can probably believe as much as Abraham did. Yeah, that should be okay, right? 
So Abraham leaves and he goes off and he does his own thing and he's got this promise, you're gonna have kids as many as this grains of sand and the stars in the sky and he has this amazing wife and his family and um, well, he doesn't have much for family yet, but he will. Um, and he's got his, um, his brother Lot. You remember Lot, the most righteous man that lived in an entire town, the only righteous man that lived in an entire town, the guy that offered his two daughters to be raped by a crowd. That's the only righteous guy in the town. Think about that. Um, Anyway, um, the Bible, it's weird, it's in there, and it's really weird. Abraham, he's on his journey, he's, he's out and he's starting his new life and he's gathering incredible amounts of cattle and crops and God is blessing this guy like crazy. And there's a few ups and downs, right? So he has this, I'm going to have a kid, Sarah doesn't really believe it, Abraham doesn't fully believe it. Eventually they're like, hmm, let's think about this. Maybe we should just have you sleep with someone else and see if that works. It works. Things go badly there. Um, eventually, though, fulfilled. The promise is fulfilled. He has a son, Isaac. Amazing. What happens next? Well, it's probably about 30 years later, actually. But what happens next? Abraham, I want you to sacrifice your son. Now, what's interesting about this? What do you do for your most high God? What do you do? You sacrifice your firstborn son. This is what's interesting, right? We open up our Bible and we just read it and we go, well, that's kind of messed up. And then we just read it quicker when it gets messed up, right? Do you ever do that? You kind of like, I'm a slow reader, but I get really fast at reading when things get weird, right? Because I just want to get to the good bit. Oh, good, there's a ram at the end. Oh, thank you, God. That was dicey the first time I read that, right? And you're reading it through in the kid's book and you're like, is this in the kid's Bible? Um, there's a lot of stories that make it into the kid's Bible, right? I mean, Samson. Weird guy, right? He made a weird bet about a riddle that wasn't a riddle. And then when he lost, he killed 30 strangers to give their clothes to the people he lost to. And this is God's representative in all of Israel as the righteousness, as a judge. And you're like, the guy just killed 30 strangers to literally take their clothes off and give them to people. Couldn't he? I mean, if you came to me and says, look, I'm going to kill you and take your clothes. I'd be like, look, here, there's my wardrobe. Take them all. Right? I mean, like, this is a weird story. Um, anyway, kids' books, weird. I don't know how we do the Old Testament with kids' stories. It's fascinating to me. Um, honestly, fascinating. One of your favorite exercises, go sit down with a four-year-old and say, what's your favorite Bible story? I guarantee they pick one of the weirdest, darkest, messed up stories ever. They go, oh, Noah, you mean the one where they killed every single person that lived and all the animals too? Yeah. <laughs> I don't want your kid at church anymore, right? <laughs> These are in their children Bible stories as well. And they're kind of messed up if you actually just look deep. Uh, what I love is when you look at the kids' Bibles, um, like there's never like, you see the boat in the water, you don't see the millions of dead bodies floating around it, right? I mean, like that would be an interesting picture book. Children's story, I've lost where I was. Where was I? Abraham. Um, when he says, Abraham, time for you to uh, pay the piper. The weird thing is when I read that story my whole life, I was more upset with Abraham than God. Because God's, I've, I've read up to like Genesis, whatever this is, you know, um, where are we? Like Genesis 20, 21, I can't remember. But at this point, I've picked up God's weird at times and I'm just going to have to deal with it, you know? But what I haven't picked up is dads are awful, right? Because I haven't picked that up yet. But I get to Abraham's story and I'm like, and Abraham's like, yeah, cool, okay. And the next day, he just heads on up to kill his son. And I'm like, Dude, put up a fight, right? This is the guy that when, Abraham, when God says, I'm going to destroy this city over there because it's wicked. And Abraham goes, no, don't do that. No, what if you find, what if there's 50 people that are righteous? And he's like, no, 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 yeah, okay, yeah. Well, what if there's 40? Um, yeah, okay, yeah. What if there's 40? You know, and he gets to the point where he's like, if there's even one, will you save them? You know? This is Abraham. And then when God goes, hey, Abraham, kill your son. He's like, yeah, okay, no worries. Like, you've got to piece these stories together and think something's amiss here. What's amiss? Abraham's been expecting this since he was born. The moment Isaac came out, he said, I have a most high God, and he's blessing me ridiculously to the point where I'm one of the most wealthy people on the planet. I know what you pay the most high God, which is why he doesn't ask him, well, where should I go? What should I do? How do I prepare the sacrifice? He does it all ritually right. He gets to the high place. He, does a, he prepares an altar. He, he knows exactly what to do. And what happens? He goes up the mountain and he gets there and he's chucking his son on the barbecue. And 
what's fascinating about it is we picture in our, our, our minds like this little like toddler or something, right? Realistically, um, if you look at the dating, he was probably somewhere in the region of about 25 to 35. Okay? Now, what some scholars love to do is say he was 33, right? Because it's so cool to be like, Jesus, he's 33, his son offered up for, you know, right? Whatever. We don't know that. We know he's around the age of 25 to 35. Um, most consensus is that. Which is fascinating, right? Because now you've got a guy that's about 120 years old, 130 years old, offering up a 25-year-old. That says a lot about Isaac, right? Because Isaac literally was on the altar tied up, and he was about to stab him before God intervened. That says a lot, because I would wager 120-year-olds versus 25-year-olds, right? I mean, 25-year-old could take most of us in this room, right? Fascinating story about sacrifice and trust and all sorts of different stuff. But that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about God being a psycho. Um, so he's going to do it. He lays him down. He's about to kill him. And what happens? God intervenes. This story is not about God being a psychopath. It's not about Abraham being a psychopath. It's about God making a radical, radical statement. I am not like any of those other gods. When you make me your most high God, I will not take your son. He's doing some radical guerrilla theater here. And to be honest with you, it's a bit messed up even still, right? Because that's an emotional roller coaster, right? For Abraham. Like when that ram comes out, you're like, that was intense, right? You're like, knife's like this far off, you know? But he's doing some serious guerrilla theater. That's what he's doing. He's saying, okay, this is what you think about gods. This is what you think about me. Let's go. Let's do it. And Abraham's like, yeah, okay. And he goes, whoa, 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 whoa. I am not like the other gods. It's fascinating. He still isn't saying I'm the only god. That's just, it blows my mind. The more I think about the fact that God's like, eh, that's irrelevant news right now. I'll get to that later in hundreds of years. When we look at the culture and we allow ourselves to see that this book isn't existing in a vacuum, it's existing in a very ingrained world that is deeply entrenched in a certain way of seeing things, that's big. Because <laughs> you'll see that Israel still sacrificed kids. Happens quite often in the Old Testament. They even tell people that God said he told them to. That's in there as well. In fact, there's even a passage in Ezekiel, it's pretty weird, where God says, I told them to sacrifice their kids. And you're like, uh, maybe just go next verse, next verse, next verse. There we go. We're fine. We're fine. He's back to eating food cooked on poop. This is not a normal book. Let's not put that in the kids one. Um, <laughs> there's some really messed up stuff here because it is deeply ingrained in culture. But let's keep talking about sacrifice, right? Because sacrifice is such a huge deal to how we see God's. Okay? Still is today, right? We still sing about Jesus being a sacrifice and God sacrificing his son, right? So we are deeply entrenched in sacrifice when we talk about religion and God. So Abraham gets the message, no child sacrifice, okay? God's not into the kids sacrificing thing, okay? So he starts burning a ram. And who knows what, what that's a statement of. I, I, I like to think of it as God saying, let's burn some animals instead of kids. Like, that's a good trade-off, right? If you had to pick, you know, if you had to pick between your kids dying or your cat, you're like, I love my cat, but okay. Yeah, fair enough, right? Or maybe you think, no, I'll take the cat, <laughs> right? I don't know. It depends on what week you've had. Um, but there's a progression. There's this move, isn't there? And then we, we continue on, and we, we see um, more and more and more of God, and he, he reveals himself to people more and more, and um, sacrifice continues. And then we get these laws that God gives these, these laws, doesn't he? Um, to the people of Israel, he, he, from Mount Sinai, he says, here's, here's these rules, these regulations, I want you to follow these. And in it, there's a whole bunch of sacrifices. There's um, about five main sacrifices. What's interesting is the first one says, look, you need to do this sacrifice and it will like, set you free from your guilt of sin. What's interesting is it doesn't set you free from sin, it sets you free from the guilt of your sin, right? Apparently God isn't worried about, actually about the sin, he just wants you to be freed from the guilt of it. Then the next sacrifices are going, if that didn't do it for you, you can sacrifice this kind of animal as well, right? So what's interesting is he's saying, look, if you don't think that sacrifice is good enough, you can do some more. Okay, fine. And he gives them more and more sacrifices they can do until they feel fully good. What's interesting, though, is 
God gave those sacrifices, right? God, everyone believed that God showed up and says, here's the law. Here's what I want you to do, and here's the truth. I, I don't know if you do or not, but yeah. Many of us in Christianity, I would say a large percentage, would go, yeah, yeah, that's true. He gave that, and he said that. But then as you read on, you continue, people start voicing some consent about that, some d- dissent, sorry. Like you have uh, David going, I don't think God wants sacrifice. I think he wants obedience. Which is kind of funny if you think about it, because he told them to sacrifice, so it's kind of like, well, chick, you know, what do you do there? That's a chicken and egg scenario. Um, but he says, I don't think God wants sacrifice. I think he wants obedience. You have um, Hosea saying, I don't think God's a God of sacrifices. I don't think he wants us to give sacrifices. In fact, I think there's a day coming where sacrifice isn't going to be required. Deeply profound, deeply prophetic, right? But at the time, uh, dude, what are you saying here, right? Jeremiah, uh, we'll talk about this later on in the day because this is one of the key texts that Jesus uses. Jeremiah, in Jeremiah 7, he says, and are you ready for this? This is crazy. Anyone, who's got a, a Bible with them? Anyone got some Bibles? So you're all like iPhones and things like that. What, what translation are we working? This is going to be a, what, good news or NIV? New English? NIV? Oh, living Bible. Look at these, all these different translations. Who likes reading? Anyone want to read for me? You would read, right? Um, can you find Jeremiah 7, 22? Who else? Judith, you're gonna read for me. Wonderful. Anyone else, David? Good line. They're probably all gonna be the same, I don't know. Um, Jeremiah 7, 22. And uh, first one to have it can just shout out. But I want you to know that this is in there and I want you to see what happens. And if you've got phones, pull them up because I'd love to see. Someone grab me uh, uh, a New King James, someone grab me uh, ESV, uh, you know, whatever you fancy. Have you got it there, David? 722. Do you want to hear? I'll give you the mic so that people can hear. It wasn't offerings and sacrifices, sacrifices I wanted from your fathers when I led them out of Egypt. That was not the point of my commandment. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Judith, you got it. It's Jeremiah 22. Oh, what just happened there? Um, but when I brought your ancestors out of Egypt and spoke to them, I did not just give them commands about burnt offerings and sacrifices. Interesting. So you've got Jeremiah saying, when they came out of Egypt, I didn't want them to do sacrifices. That wasn't the point. Uh, but then you suddenly got another translation going, well, I didn't just give them sacrifices. Interesting. What, you got something? Mm-hmm. I'll hold it for you. But when I brought you forefathers out of Egypt, I gave them no commands about whole offering and sacrifice. Whoa, that's even more abrupt, right? When I brought your ancestors out of Egypt, I did not give them commands about offerings and sacrifices. Have you, do you ever read this stuff and think, oh, I missed that? But you also notice in the translation difference, when I brought them out of Egypt, I did not give them uh, commands about sacrifices and offerings. When I brought them out of Egypt, I did not just give them commands about offerings and sacrifices. Your translation is biased. Always. Any translation you pick, it was translated by someone and they had a theology. And I can tell you, at least for that verse, I can't tell you about every verse, what it says in the Hebrew or anything like that, that verse has no possibility of having the word just in it. Literally no possibility. And actually, Jeremiah was exiled from Israel for 20 years because he said that. When he said, I did, don't, when God brought us out of Egypt. So when did God bring them out of Egypt? What happened next? He gave them the law, right? What's Jeremiah saying? Do you know what Jeremiah is saying? This is radical, and we won't talk about this at Sunday school. Jeremiah says, I don't think Deuteronomy is from God. And he got kicked out of Israel for it. Isn't that absolutely mental? It's in your Bible. Now, whether he's right or wrong, let's leave that to the sides. But he said something pretty offensive and pretty radical. Hosea said the same thing in, in, in one way or another. And what we find, and this is something that we're going to talk about more and more as the day goes on, what we find is throughout the Bible, there are multiple voices discussing who is this God. And oftentimes, they disagree. So Jeremiah fundamentally disagreed with the priestly texts of what you should do to be right. He says, I don't think God's like that. David did it in a sense when he says, I don't think God wants sacrifice. I think he wants obedience. I think God's much more interested in our hearts and obeying him than he is about doing a sacrifice and then not being at all godly. And a guy after God's heart might have an indication on this. There's dissent as we go through the scriptures. Now, what's interesting is that's 
a big jump from God's going, huh, these guys are killing people. We'll go and worship, we'll, we'll kill some animals. That's, that's a big jump, right? And then for people to then go, well, I don't think God wants us to kill at all. I don't think God works like that. What's the next step? What does Jesus do? Jesus ends all sacrifice. Jesus nail in the coffin on the sacrificial system. There is no more sacrifice to get right with God. Paul takes it even further, actually, right? If you think about it, when Paul talks about sacrifice, what does he say? He says, you are a living sacrifice. It goes from sacrifice being killing people to sacrifice being living people living as a sacrifice. There's this trajectory all the way through scripture. Now, has God changed? No. Who changed? We did. People changed. And God, apparently, was with them the whole way. Ups and downs throughout. <laughs> Big ups and downs throughout. But there was change throughout. And the change was not with God. The change was with us. Now, you can see this all the way through Scripture. We'll take a break in a second because this has been an intense session, I know. Um, but I want to look at it in a few other ways. So let's look at the laws themselves. When, when we look at the laws, we, we go, man, these are pretty intense, right? I mean, there's laws about slavery. There's laws that are like, you know, if, if, if you cause someone to lose their eye, they should rip your eye out. It's like, all right, that sounds a bit intense. And also, you have to stop and think about these laws. Some of them are so oddly specific. Do you ever read the laws and just go, oh, that's specific? Senya and I were looking through some the other day just having a laugh because that's deeply irrelevant, uh, irreverent. Um, <laughs> But we were reading these, and there's one, it's just, it cracked us up. And it was like, if a, if a man and another man are fighting, and a woman steps in and goes, I'll break this up, and she accidentally touches his penis, you should cut it off. And I'm like, how often did that happen? Come on, how often? Was there two guys fighting, a woman jumped in, accidentally touched someone's penis? Like, that seems like an oddly specific law. Like, I mean, this is the Bible. I, there's a lot of things I wish the Bible talked about. That's not really one of them. I don't think that's ever happened to me as far as I can recall, okay? It certainly wasn't that scarring that I had to cut someone's hand off. Um, but there's so weirdly specific laws, isn't there? And you're like, huh, okay. Um, but what's interesting is, do you know that most of these laws are a copy? So we talked about this Mesopotamian culture, this, this world that had a whole bunch of different gods and different things going on. Um, they had a, a system of laws and rules. They're not like complete savages, give or take. They're just killing kids. Um, but they actually do have codes. They do have laws. They do have regulations. And actually, we have them. You can go and read them. Um, there's a whole bunch of different codexes. There's, there's a primary codex. Uh, it's called the Codex of Hammam. Um, and that was the main codex that influenced how everyone else wrote their laws. And this is going to maybe be a bit offensive to you, but the laws God gave were heavily influenced by it because they're almost identical. Um, now, that's not to say God didn't give them. It's not to say that they're not good, they're not right. But it's probably to say that actually God was using that information, this law that they already had, to give a law. And what's interesting is actually not what did God say, it's actually sometimes what did God not say. It's actually the differences. So you look at the laws on slavery, and we look at it today, right? Thank you, Wilberforce. Thank you, all these different amazing people throughout history. We look at the laws on slavery in the Bible, and we're like, this is awkward. Oh, we might have been part of the problem here, right? Because Christianity was one of the core problems in slavery worldwide. Um, the laws are pretty bad, but they're pretty dang progressive. Because if you look at the laws in the Codex of Hammam, they treated their slaves like animals, and God doesn't allow it. His, his laws on, uh, on slavery are remarkably progressive. You have to set them free after a certain amount of years, right? His laws on women are remarkably progressive. They're messed up today. How many of you haven't been to church because you had your period, right? How many of you are not even allowed to be touched by other human beings because you're on your period? That's like barbaric, like Bronze Age, maybe even Stone Age thinking, right? But that's literally what they thought. Oh my gosh, they're bleeding. They must be unclean. Everyone treat them like a leper. What? Right, today we're like, uh, no. But that's genuinely how they thought. God's laws actually start moving us in a certain direction, and they still seem really barbaric at the time. So let's look at an eye for an eye, okay? Let me tell you how an eye for an eye works. Sorry, I've got really, I think I've got hay fever. Um, Svenja, can you get me some tissues? Thanks. I just swear I keep wiping my nose. Um, an eye for an eye. Let me tell you how the eye for an eye works in the ancient texts. Oh, perfect. Um, the law was this, okay? 
If someone causes you to lose an eye, you are to respond justly, accordingly, like this. If they are richer than you, they are to pay you for your eye. If they are of the same social standing as you, you are to gouge out their eye. If they are poorer than you, of a lower social caste, you are to stone them to death. That's how the world worked. Pretty messed up, right? We think of like caste system in like India or some of these different cultures, right? I mean, that still exists to some degree today. They have these caste systems of good people, yeah, terrible, right? Worse something, eh, okay, slaves. I mean, that's how they, they perceived the world. So when God comes along and he says, if someone causes you to lose an eye, I say an eye for an eye. What does he say? He's not talking about eyes. How often do you think people were losing eyes? Like, I mean, did these mothers not teach them not to run with scissors? Of course, like, you know, every other person wasn't losing eyes, okay? This is a lot, much more of an idiom than anything, right? So we first of all have to acknowledge that everyone wasn't running around with one eye, okay? Um, hopefully. I don't actually know, actually. That's maybe me taking an assumption. Maybe everyone was losing eyes. Maybe they had some sort of weird, wild sport where they, like, I don't know, threw, like, balls at each other's faces or something and would lose their eyes. I don't know. But... He's not saying anything about eyes. What's he saying? He's making a radicalized statement of equality. Radicalized. If that person causes you to lose an eye and they're richer than you, an eye for an eye. If they're poorer than you, an eye for an eye. What's he saying? Every person treat one another as equals. Now, there's other laws that don't seem to suggest that as well. So, right? So, we're still on a progression here. But what's interesting is God comes along later and upstates his rules, doesn't he? What does Jesus have to say? Okay, God in the flesh. Okay, you can't really argue with this one, okay? So you can debate the laws like Jeremiah did. You can if you want. I mean, I'm not going to argue with you. I don't know where you stand on that, and it's kind of irrelevant, mostly. But Jesus comes along and he says, look, an eye for an eye? You've heard it said. He starts, this, is, this makes me laugh, right? Because it's Jesus, it's God. And he says, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye. Yeah, by you, right? <laughs> You're the one that gave us these rules. But he's like, uh, you've heard some idiot told you an eye for an eye. Like, you, you told us an eye for an eye, right? So, but although they didn't know he was God, so like, instead it's some random guy telling you that God's an idiot, right? So it's even worse in some sense, right? But what does Jesus say? Oh, you've heard it said an eye for an eye. What do I say? Turn the other cheek. I say don't respond at all. In fact, I'm saying something even more radical. I'm saying bless them. I'm saying love them. What? So we start off with people, oh, you caused me to lose my eye? Well, you're poor. I'll kill you. That'll make me feel better, right? I mean, like, you ever do something really, really over the top to try and feel better and realize that was way out of line and just stupid? I do that often if I get really upset and, you know, I don't know. It's the person that punches a hole through the wall and then is left going, now I have a hole in my wall and I don't feel better and I'm bleeding from my broken hand, right? You know, that's the sort of situation. You caused me to lose my eye. Now I'm left with a dead guy. And I've got a little bit of remorse and guilt here that I killed someone. Jesus takes them on a journey. God takes them on a journey. He goes, hey, let's maybe treat each other as equals. And then Jesus takes us to a point where he goes, actually, let's treat others as even better than ourselves. Let's treat ourselves with value and honor and respect. But actually, if it comes down to it, we value others, we respect others, and we honor others even more, if that's possible. I'm going to prefer you to me. And that includes your enemy. Sorry. They didn't like that message at all, right? It's like us coming to church and going, you should be nicer to ISIS and your family. What? Right? I mean, this is the kind of radical stuff he's saying. But we can see again trajectory, momentum, journey. It's really dangerous to pick up your Bible, start at the beginning and go, oh, that's what God's like. Close your Bible and go out. Because you're going to do some seriously messed up stuff, right? You're going to end up in jail really quickly. Because God doesn't change, but our view of God radically changes as we change. As we as a culture grow and develop. Let's be honest, right? The Bible, the topic of slavery, right? It gets a bit better, you know. But at the end of the day, the Bible only promoting slavery at the end. It's still saying it's totally okay. It's still saying it's totally fine. Paul is writing saying, yeah, it's fine. 
He's not saying slavery is wrong, we should undo it. No, he's not. The simple fact of the matter is the Bible has nothing to say about slavery, unless we dig deep and see the contrasts of culture and things like that. But actually, reading it from today, we open the Bible, it supports slavery. And that's why Christians were at the helm of supporting slavery. What's interesting is people read the Bible differently, and that's why other Christians were at the helm of getting us set free from it. So you can read the Bible two ways. One supports slavery, one undoes it. I'd like to propose the type of way of reading the Bible that leads us to go, maybe let's not do this, is probably a healthier way to read it. But it does require you to go, nah, I don't think they had it fully yet. And that's a terrifying thought, actually, right? Because if we're honest, that's a really scary thought. Well, the Bible doesn't have everything to say on slavery. Now, it does if you look at love others as you love yourself. It does if you look at, like, love your enemy. It does if it looks like love thinks of others. It's selfless. It's compassionate. It's, you know, it, it does if you dig deep and you start to really study this text and look at who God really is and as he's revealed in Jesus. But on the surface, nope. Woman, tell you what. They weren't, they, they, by the end, they were used powerfully. Jesus was like hardcore pro-woman. It's really kind of crazy. And it, he would have gotten big trouble for it a lot, right? But on a face value, reading through the Bible, women still very much second-class citizens. Sorry, guys. Why? Because women were still very much second-class citizens. That's basically the large commentary that the Bible has on women, is in their, our culture, they're second-class and we're not particularly pushing the goat. We're pushing it slightly towards the end. We're starting to challenge that. But on the whole, no. Now, how many women in here are thankful that that's not the case still? To some degree, right? We've still got a long way to go, and we're 2,000 years on. But we've gone a long way, OK? So as much as we feel it's bad, you go back 2,000 years and try and live, you would very quickly want to come back to today. Um, there's a progression. And I'm thankful for people like Wilberforce, who picked up his Bible and says, Nah, I'm not going to do what these other Christians are doing and read their Bible at face value. I'm going to dig deep. I'm thankful for people that open up their Bible and go, yeah, well, Paul says women be silent, but let me read deeper. Let's, make, let's actually look at the context. What was happening in that culture? Who were they worshipping? What, what did women tend to represent? Like, oh. So there's this progression, there's this development, and God does not change, he does not grow, but our view of God does radically. Because the truth is, if you read through, do you know what's funny about the Old Testament? Is women are always the bad guy. Literally, always. Starts in the first chapters. Who's the bad guy? Eve, right? But it continues. Every time someone screws up, oh, it was their wife, right? Always. It's, it's mind-blowing. If you actually, what, I challenge you to read through the scriptures and find people. Jezebel, Delilah. I mean, it's constantly someone's, Samson has two wives, and both times, they're the bad person. Not the guy that's tying up 300 foxes, which, by the way, is one of the greatest feats in all the Bible. I don't care if you made a blind man see. Catching 500 foxes, tying them together, setting them on fire, throwing them, I, my, my mind... All over like a petty feud. Literally the smallest, pettiest feud you've ever seen. Um, but who's the bad guy? Oh, his ex-wife. Good thing he's married now. Oh, wait, she's the bad guy too. Lot sleeps with his two daughters. Who's the bad guy? Oh, the two daughters. Right? It's always the women. Now, maybe the women are bad people in these stories. I'm not, I'm not <laughs> saying, you know, they could be. Right? I mean, we're all pretty capable of doing some stupid stuff. Um, but it's interesting. It's interesting how much it reflects our culture and it reflects how we see things. It's interesting that the men writing it down never blame the men. Just a thought. Um, you're starting to panic now as well, and that's okay. Um, what time are we at? Sorry, I need to drink. Oh my gosh. Sorry, guys. Um, <laughs> let's take a pause. Trust me, okay? Don't run away. Don't like, disappear and not come back because realistically you're left with nothing good. But Let's, let's take a break and let's, let's just have a breath. It's okay. It's going to get okay. We're going to continue looking at these things and we're going we're to start to look at different ways to look at the scripture. It's, it's going to come together. It's okay. God does look like Jesus. He isn't going to make you eat your babies or any of these kind of crazy things. It's, it's okay. It's okay, okay? Um, if you have eaten your babies, there's grace, okay? There's grace. Um, that would be really no, no. <laughs> Um, so let's take a break. We'll come back in like five, ten minutes. Just grab a drink, run to the loo or whatever, because we'll, we'll want to finish 
um, not long after we start again, probably, but yeah. Okay, so that was part one of this three-part series. Now, hopefully you're still with me, hopefully you powered through, and I know that it wasn't the most uplifting and encouraging message. It can be a bit dark to look at the scriptures um, just openly at times, uh, but we are going to, in the next couple of videos, the next uh, passage, we're going to look at how the Jews read these texts, how did they approach their Bible, how did they read scripture, and what can that teach us about how we approach scripture. We'll find that actually today in modern Christianity, we read the Bible very, very differently to Judaism. Um, and then in the last uh, section, we'll look at how did Jesus read the Bible and how did he interpret it? How did he inform what Christianity became? How did him and his followers approach scripture and interpret scripture? And this is huge for us today. And often we completely miss it. Um, and so these are going to be really foundational uh, teachings for anyone that wants to open up their Bible and be honest and look at it with honest eyes without trying to read it with blinkers or just la la la, it's not there. Um, we want to be honest when we open a scripture. We want to really delve into it. And so I hope you uh, you catch me next week for uh, the next podcast where we look at what Judaism says. If you can't wait, all of my stuff is on thegracecourse.com. You can watch this video series um, on there. Everything on there is free. Um, and so if you can't wait, check out thegracecourse.com. You can binge the whole series in one go. Um, but yeah, unless that is you, I will see you next week for the next episode. Be blessed, my friend.